0: Hi, my name is Fritzi Horseman, and welcome to Compassion in Action. My guest today is Donna Jackson Nakazawa, who is an award winning journalist and internationally recognized speaker, whose work explores the intersection of neuroscience, immunology, and human emotion. Her mission is to translate emerging science in ways that help those with chronic conditions find healing. She is the author of six books, including her newest, The Angel and the Assassin, The Tiny Brain Cell That Changed the Course of Medicine, and the book that we love at Compassion Prison Project, Childhood Disrupted, How Your Biography Becomes Your Biology, and How You Can Heal. Donna Jackson Nakazawa, welcome to Compassion and Action. I'm so excited to have you on this show, and um, I just thank you for the book, Childhood Disrupted, because it's informed me and given me such insights in, into things I didn't know about Aces, and and we actually use it in our curriculum for our facilitators in our uh, circle training. So thank you.
1: Such a pleasure. It means so much to me the work that you're doing, and to be part of it, you know, is um, it's just very moving and meaningful to see that aha come about um, for individuals who've experienced so much trauma. So thank you for having me.
0: Thank you. Yes. And, you know, people in prison, um, we did some research of, of our own. We did the ACE study with over 2,700 people in prison and in the U S 64% have one or more ACE in prison. It's 98%. Right.
1: And 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 are we surprised? Right. You know,
0: exactly. And just 64% have six or more ACEs of the people of the men and women we've yes. Um, So I want to just start off with, in the simplest of terms, can you explain what the Adverse Childhood Experiences quiz is and what the significance of that is to you?
1: Sure. So it really began with two erstwhile physicians who were thinking way beyond their time, Vincent Felitti at Kaiser Permanente and Robert Anda at the CDC. And they decided to ask patients Um, whether 10 particular experiences resonated for them when they looked back from midlife in their 50s and 60s to their first 18 years of life. And at that time, they were asking questions no one had really asked before because um, we all grew up thinking trauma is probably being beaten or sexually abused, which are extremely traumatic, right? But nobody thought, trauma is how someone treats you. And so they asked these 10 questions about what we might think of as maltreatment or household dysfunction. And they included things that were very common in everyday experiences growing up. Like, did you have a parent who was depressed or had any kind of mood disorder or any kind of mental health issue? Did you have a parent who had any kind of addiction, you know, alcohol use, drug use? Did you have a parent who routinely put you down, criticized or humiliated you? And we'll come back to that later, what a potent ace that turns out to be. Um, Did you feel your family didn't have your back? Nobody really thought you were special or cared about you. Now think about this is the mid 1990s. We haven't even begun the trauma discussion as a a country or as as a planet. And they're asking these very, very attuned questions to really what comes down to a child's felt sense of safety. They also asked, "Were you did someone touch you inappropriately sexually? Were you slapped or kicked or beaten? Did you see your mom kicked or slapped or beaten? Um, and was anyone in your family incarcerated?" They compared those questions. Uh, to individuals' health records. And first, to back up, they found that 64%, as you already said, Pritzi, reported at least one form of trauma. Those who reported one were more likely to have three or more, right? And, um, and th- the numbers were pretty staggering because these were largely middle-class, white, college-educated people in midlife no one was expecting it. It blew the researchers away. You know, I interviewed them, and um, and uh, really, you know, the depth of suffering out there brought tears to their eyes. Well, then, as if that weren't surprising enough, they compared it to their patients' records. So here's Kaiser Permanente, one of the biggest, you know, health um, records collectors in the world compares these adults' health records to their answers to these 10 questions, and lo and behold, um, and I wrote down some of the statistics here so I would just be able to rattle them off, those with three or more ACEs had a 60% increased risk of an autoimmune disease. Those include lupus, multiple sclerosis, rheumatoid arthritis, type one diabetes. Those with four or more ACEs were, sorry, I just did something and uh, lost my little crib sheet here. Uh, Bear with me, everybody. Sorry about that. Um, Four or more categories of ACEs, two and a half times more likely to be diagnosed with cancer and lung disease, four and a half times more likely to be diagnosed with depression and Alzheimer's disease, 12 times more likely to attempt to take one's own life, and six or more categories of ACEs, so that's 64% of the population in which you're doing this tremendous work, that shortened an individual's lifespan by 20 years. So this was a groundbreaking study, and I just wanna add that it began this conversation took a very long time. So Childhood Disrupted came out in 2016, 2015, hardcover, 2016, paperback. And even at that time, I was pushing, pushing, pushing to start this conversation in major media, in the work that I do as a journalist. And I just couldn't get traction for the trauma story. Now, over the past five years, that has changed. The landscape has changed incredibly. And it's very important to say before I stop that we have come to understand that in addition to these 10 questions of household dysfunction um, and ill treatment, um, which included parents divorcing or separating, they left out a whole lot of stuff, right? That this, their purview going in was to look at their patients and that cohort of patients But now that we understand adversity and how it changes an individual's biology and their brain and their immune system and their stress response, we see the common denominator for all of these isn't did it happen in your living room, which is very important. Did it happen in your community? Did you grow up with violence? Did you grow up with poverty? Did you grow up with food scarcity? Did you go to substandard schools? Did you see people shot on the street? Did you, did you go to bed hungry? And then suddenly the ACE world has expanded to all the different ways. Did your parents just argue constantly so that you didn't feel safe? Maybe nobody hit anybody and nobody ever left, but was it unsafe? And when we use that as a common denominator, does it up a child's stress, threat, response, their sense that they're unsafe, then we can see that all of these become adverse childhood experiences.
0: I, it's so great to hear your description of this. Thank you for that. And just to add to your list, with four or more aces, is seven times more likely to go to prison, um, which uh, which makes perfect sense. And so now, now that we understand that adverse child experiences don't just affect the middle class, but they also affect, and probably even more so. Of course the impoverished communities of our society. Um, what happens to the brain, body and, and spirit? I like to add spirit to it. Um, when a, a child is traumatized, what happens? What are the, what are the mechanics? How does, and what, when we say they're in a stress response, what does that mean?
1: Great question. So um, the number one job of our brain across evolutionary time is to detect in our environment from thousands of cues, seen and unseen, you know, through all of our six senses, actually, because our sixth sense is our sense of proprioception, like who's near us, who's around us, is to detect through our six senses, are we safe or not safe? That is the brain's number one job, 24-7. It does it even when you're sleeping. That's why somebody comes to the room when you're asleep and boom, your eyes fly open. We evolved over evolutionary evolutionary history to detect threat. That's what our brain does 24-7. And when our brain detects threat, especially at a very early age, when we're trying to figure out new to this world as a very young infant, toddler, child, and we have no way of caring for ourselves on our own. So we're coming in vulnerable and you know, um, unable to care for ourselves or even grasp the idea of self-care. The brain evolved to ask that question. What kind of world are we in here? Is it safe for me or unsafe? And those are two different trajectories right there. If your brain and body are developing and have this sense of inherent safety, that brain and that immune system, and I'll explain that in a second, develop very differently than the brain and the immune system that are evolving in an environment in which those six senses and the brain are detecting threat. All the things that we mentioned before that can be considered adverse childhood experiences, they are all threats. And threats do something very interesting because across evolutionary time, our sense of social threat evolved along with our immune system. It's why you're here, it's why I'm here. Our ancestors are individuals who developed a braiding together of our social, inv- and social threat and our environmental threat with our immune system pricking up because across evolutionary time, from the time we were hunter-gatherers, actually way before that, If you detected a threat in the environment, it was very, very likely that you were going to be physically wounded. Think about the threats for most of human existence. You know, our modern life is not even the width of a hair uh, on an elephant across evolutionary time. So a threat meant warring tribe, wound, infection predatory animal, saber-toothed tiger, you know, wound infection. So as organisms, we evolve so that if we feel that we're on that trajectory of my environment is not safe, here I am, a little baby, you know, mewling and not knowing what to do, um, crying or whatever, And and we're a toddler or six-year-old or 10-year-old, and you know you can't be out there in the world on your own, but you're on this trajectory where the world where you are doesn't feel safe because of these adversities and and stressors in the environment, your immune system is constantly going to get messages from your brain, the stress threat detector, let's rev it up here, I don't know what's going to happen. And that causes um, your hypothalamus and pituitary and adrenal to rush up this cocktail of inflammatory chemicals and hormones that over time begin to make what we call epigenetic changes. So these are genes that occur that change after you're born. And I can break that down a little bit more these epigenetic changes, kind of like taking a dimmer switch on, on a wall and turning the light higher or lower. We have lots of genes that we can turn that dimmer switch high or low based on the stressors and threats in our environment. And when you're on that trajectory where there are a bunch of stressors and threats, the brain is going, I don't feel safe. The different hormones and chemicals are, you know, uh, coursing through your body because anything could happen. This leads to changes to genes that oversee a lot of things in our body. One of those is our stress response in general. How are we going to respond to stress in, in, in the future? Are, are things going to be hair triggering for us? Or are we going to go, ah, that's no big deal, water off a duck's back. Um, disease, genes for disease, genes for mental health. All can be, that dimmer switch can be turned on to full or hopefully some of those genes stay off. But the more stress there is in a child's environment, the more the brain is picking up on stressors, the more the immune system is going into overdrive, then the more likely it is that these genes that oversee our reactivity, reactivity is a bad word, oversee the way in which our stress response pops on and off, on and off, kind of keep it stuck in the on position and turn on the genes for hundreds of diseases.
0: And so if you're in the on position, like you just said, so things that most people would say don't really matter that this is like, eh, we're in the library, it's safe. For people with, that, with it way on, it still feels like a threat, like people at school as well.
1: That's right. And we can see in students who have had um, higher ACE scores that they have a kind of physical hypervigilance, right? And so part of trauma training in schools now is to help teachers see that a kid who's in a home where there's a lot of trauma or a neighborhood where there's a lot of trauma is going to have a type of hypervigilance. And it might be that they have trouble thinking that friends wanna be their friend. Would make sense if you actually know what's happening in their home. They may have trouble laughing when other kids are laughing. Um, They may tighten their jaw or clench their fists because they're just not sure. The brain has not learned to trust, and so you're absolutely right.
0: And what a, sor- what a sorrowful thing that the brain has not learned to trust, because that's like the basic need to have for human connection. Yes, and it human co- said. And human connection is one of the, the paths to healing. So wow, what a um, what a horrible adaptive. It's it's adaptive at the beginning.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Turning on those those stress genes, but it becomes maladaptive, meaning n- doesn't benefit you.
1: That's exactly right. And so we know that, um, for instance, we can see during COVID, you know, isolation has been really hard on people, and it's really um, it's led to you know spikes in all kinds of mental health disorders and. And he, without human connection, you know, how do we get through uh, what Dorothy Day called the long lonely, loneliness, right? You know, it's this, this suffering occurs in everyone's life and, and for different people to different degrees. And, and so you have individuals who've had greater suffering in childhood because of their circumstances. And, and, and then we have a situation where the brain is saying, don't trust and we can't have connection, which is kind of the antidote to everything we're talking about. It pumps in all these great hormones like oxytocin and other things that are healing for the brain. And so when we take away connection, even for individuals who don't have a history of trauma, we see poor health outcomes. So we see that a lot in the elderly population. And, and connection is the healer. We, um, a friend of mine, who's um, director of child and maternal public health at Johns Hopkins, Christy Bethel always says, we are the medicine. We, our connection, we are the medicine. And so this is where this conversation about trauma becomes so important because a lot of times you'll see individuals If I'm lecturing live, you know, you just see people, tears come down their face because it's the first time that it makes sense to them why they're living life as if it is an emergency in here and now because of things that happened 10, 20, 40, 60 years ago, and, and these changes are real. We can see in the brain when we do brain scans of children and adults who suffered from adversity and maltreatment, we can see changes in the neural connectivity or the connections between synapses, synapses shoot from each other in your brain to create these connections that become thought patterns and feelings and behaviors. And we can see that some of these connections between key areas of the brain, like the prefrontal cortex, which is where we're sort of, our decision-making happens, our hippocampus, where we're kind of drawing on past memories and comparing them to current experiences to see, is this real? Is this a threat? Is it not? And the amygdala, which is like the the siren on top of of an ambulance. It just says, threat alert, threat alert, threat alert. And the way in which these connect in what we call the connectome of the brain, they're not firing and wiring together the way they should. And an area of the brain called the default mode network, it's a big one, otherwise known as the DMN. A lot of work's been going on around this in the last couple of years with with Ruth Lanius at, at McGill University and trauma. And that area of the brain, the DMN is associated with our sense of self, our sense of self for good or for ill from cradle to grave. Our story about ourselves, it's your DMN is kind of like, you know, if you are driving your car and you brake suddenly and you say to yourself, oh, if I say to myself, oh, Donna, you're such an idiot, God bless it. You always mess up, you know? that's my dm it's my story it's my sense of self it's how i whether or not i can access feelings of self when we talk about self care like can you sit down and meditate can you go for a walk can you look at a rose and 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 appreciate it that sense of self care of self tending of self compassion The DMN is all is a lot of it is happening in the DMN. And we see that um, in the DMN in individuals who've had maltreatment and trauma, um, sometimes that that area of the brain is not lighting up the way that it should. So so we have all this information. We know individuals with trauma also show higher levels in blood, just common blood work of these inflammatory factors that I talked about earlier. So we have a lot of really good evidence that trauma changes the brain and the immune response. Now, the good news is um, when we teach individuals meditation, um, when they go through different types of healing modalities, we've actually been able to see that some of the genes that I talked about that get turned on and stuck in that on position, they shift back again. So the brain is highly neuroplastic because around now I'm imagining we have listeners who are going, I'm doomed. And that is not the case. That is not the case at all. This is information for how what happened to you might have affected your biology and your brain and your immune response and your stress threat response. But this biology comes with a tremendous promise that our neurobiology is fluid, right? The brain is highly plastic. And if we change the environment in which we put this organism we talked about that wants to know, am I safe or not safe? If we change that environment, if we begin to help an individual to feel safe in their own body, we can begin to see changes in the neuroplasticity
0: of the brain. But then we go to prison. We're in a prison environment.
1: That's that's why I'm that's why I'm saying this. This is this is exactly why I'm saying this, because how are we healing here?
0: Exactly. And it's not just the people that live in prison that are affected, it's also the people working there. They don't feel safe. So they're on their genes are turned way on as well. And the life expectancy of a correctional officer is 59 years old presenting as six, year, uh, six aces. It just,
1: you know, as with so many things, how did we come up with this system? You know, in what, in what world do we think we're doing good here?
0: Well, I think um, when we're traumatized, we wanna fight back, right? Mm-hmm. And I think it's a trauma response. I think prisons are a trauma response because we're not in our cortex, but now we have the opportunity to move to our cortex and start making decisions. That's, that's what I'm thinking. And so everybody let's calm down, let's create a safe environment and let's change what we're doing.
1: You do that so beautifully. It's so moving to watch how you do that. It's very moving.
0: Thank you. Um, um, so you were talking about about emotional abuse and how that is probably one of the worst ones of all the ACEs. Is that, is that, is that I'm saying that- No, no, you're
1: on the right path. So um, some years ago when I first interviewed um, Vincent Felitti, father of the ACE study, um, he said, we saw a slightly higher correlation. We didn't put it in the literature, Donna, and, you know, um, but we saw a slightly higher correlation between emotional humiliation, criticism, and, poor health outcome. It was very slight. Uh, I asked him for permission to report on that in Childhood Disrupted. He gave me permission to report on it. And um, But in the past two years, we've seen two other studies come out, which really back that up. And one of the th- thoughts about that is that um, for a child who is looking for safety, one of the things that makes emotional abuse or criticism or humiliation so damaging is that it's coming in between periods of safety or love or, you know, let's go to the store together, here's some new sneakers, good job on on your homework. And then in comes the, you know, next day, what unexpectedly, you know, and this comes of course with substance use disorders, with mental health disorders, parents who've never gotten the help they need to manage their own stress. Life gets very stressful um, being a parent. And certainly if you're growing up in poverty, violent neighborhood, uh, you know, with single parent, there are just so many. And that parent grew up without being able to modulate their stress response and without people showing them how to do it. And then that, that chronic humiliation slips in and it puts kids um, in that state of biological implausibility. They know they can't run out into the world and, and make it on their own. They, they think this is what love is. And they never know when this, sort of bear in the living room is going to emerge. So let me just talk about that for a minute. So we've talked a lot about the stress response and I know it gets kind of deep in the weeds and scientific, but an analogy that I like to use is imagine that you're in the woods and you see a big bear and you've got a granola bar with you. And that bear thinks that granola bar looks pretty swift you, your whole body is going to go into fight, flight, freeze, right? It's just boom. So your body is now preparing to either run away from the bear, all your oxygen runs into your arms and legs. The hair stands up a little bit on your arms. Um, your body doesn't care about digestion right then. That's why you get the butterflies when you're anxious. Cause your body's like, well, I don't care about that. Let's like, get ready to fight, fight or flee. Um, and your fists you know, are full of adrenaline so you can fight the bear or run from the bear, neither of which are a good idea, but let's say that the bear looks at you and for whatever reason, he shrugs and walks away. Your body has gone into the first half of the stress cycle. It's a part of our nervous system. It's called the sympathetic nervous system or I call it the stress now system, the SNS. And then the bear walks away. If you were a child who grew up on the I'm safe track, which we talked about earlier, your body now is going to do what nature intended. The bear is gone. Your body is going to go in the second half of the stress cycle. And that's the parasympathetic nervous system, the PNS, or what I call the PER now system. This is what nature intended. We see it in nature all the time. You know, animals. Are involved in a chase. It's very high, it's highly stressful. There's you know um, maybe a, a fight, and then afterwards the animal shakes it off and goes back as if nothing ever happened. Stress cycle, stress response, homeostasis, rest, digest. Now the blood and oxygen can run back into your belly, and you can digest your food, and your brain begins to work again. But when we're in that first half, our brain's not working very well. All of our attention is going into how do we defend or escape. So when we have a situation in the living room where the bear isn't in the woods, but is in the living room, and sometimes they pass through and they're the loving mom or dad, and other times coming back the other way, they pass through, they're the bear. Children get stuck in, not just through chronic humiliation, but all of the ACEs in this first half of the stress cycle, in this stress now system of our autonomic nervous system. And and so the reason why chronic humiliation, and we don't have all the answers, I want to be clear, seems to stand out as being particularly linked to um, poor adult outcomes, including um, mental health disorders, bipolar depression, is because a child is seeking their sense of love and safety from an adult who's going right into the very core of their being. You are stupid, you're worthless, you're unlovable. I'm gonna get rid of you. I'm gonna put you out on the, who's gonna care for you if I don't? And right into that story of self and sense of self that we talked about in a way that is less true if another ace, let's say, your parents divorce so chronic humiliation appears to have this particular toxic effect
0: yeah I'm, I'm welling up in tears right now because my mom used to um, humiliate humiliate me and my sister a lot and my father so um, yeah and it, it you know hearing about this and the repercussions it's had in my life and in my sister's life is um, it's significant and I'm still hyper, hyper vigilant to criticism right now. Um, and so, you know, thank you for explaining this and really shedding a light on this and having this in the conversation now, because, um, we don't know what our, we don't know the effect of our words on other people. And, and as you're, as you're, you're now researching or have your new book is all about, um, humiliating teenage girls, right? Isn't that part of it?
1: Yes. So um, the last book that came out last year, The Angel and the Assassin, was about really what's happening in the brain in the face of trauma. Um, And then this next book will be out um, in fall 2022. Even though I finished writing it, it just takes forever for the publishing machine And it's really about um, the female brain and trauma and sexism and and the changes we see in the developing female brain that are slightly different than what we see in the developing male brain for reasons having to do with estrogen coming on board during development. And um, it's only very recently that researchers began to look at this because shockingly uh, before 2015, there was no mandate to to look at male, female sex differences. And before 2016 in neuroscience, there was no mandate to look at it in preclinical research. And to be clear, preclinical research is where the brilliant scientist at you know Harvard or Yale or wherever gets the genius idea to look at something. And they then begin to look at it in animal models. And then from there comes all of our clinical research. Let's look at this in men and women didn't use female models in preclinical neuroscience. You want to know why? Keep those pesky hormones out of it. So now we're starting to have this very interesting new data coming in about the different ways that stress affects the male and female developing brain. And so that's, there's, you know, and, and what does Sexism and social media, and just it have to do with all of this. And why are we seeing uh, not only that girls have three times the rate of depression of adolescent boys, but why is that trend getting worse? Why is teen female suicide skyrocketing? Why are we seeing um, more and more girls with eating disorders and bipolar disorder? And you know, it's just if you talk to any psychiatrist at at any psychiatric hospital, they'll just say, our wards are just full of adolescent girls with what is going on here. So that's me, you know, did a deep dive into that. And, um, and with men, we see more behavioral and attention disorders. So this isn't a right or wrong. It's like, okay, people, if we are going to help, we actually need to see how and why the intersection, of stress, threat, immunology, hormones, development, and the brain come together at puberty to create changes that researchers can see on brain scans that are different in female brain and the male brain. We've got to know that so that we can address individuals for their unique suffering because if we cannot meet people with their unique suffering, they cannot feel seen and heard and known and valued in the healing process.
0: Wow, there's so much I wanna say in all of this. Um, so with the men, it, that's more testosterone, right? And so it's, is it more risk taking behaviors as well? Is that? Well, you
1: know, um so I haven't written that book yet. So I just want to say I don't know what I don't know, um, and I want to just stop on that because this book I worked with really the leading researchers in the world on male female sex differences, and we dove into we know a lot about men because that's all we knew about, right? And we're just learning this about females, and so I just want to say that um, I try not to talk about anything unless I've done like a two year dive into. The, the, you know, working with the, with the researchers in their labs and really figuring it out. So I, I, um, the short answer is testosterone has a lot to do with it in men. Yes, estrogen has a ton to do with it in females. And to go back to across evolutionary time, estrogen was our friend as females because it estrogen is a powerhouse hormone. Like, you know, how is it that a woman at the Olympics two weeks ago can you know do all that she's doing. She's um, 50 pounds lighter than a male and she has a smaller heart, lungs, all the organs of the female body are much smaller because you have to make room for this uterus. And so estrogen is what allows women to do so much with a smaller body and smaller organs. It's also the reason why when you give vaccines to men and women, women have a more robust vaccine response because across our evolution, women had to have a more robust immune response to allow us to carry children to term with all the risks in our environment. So again, we evolved in very intelligent ways that now are maladaptive, as you said so beautifully earlier, um, not only in our own lifetime, but across evolution, some things have happened that are maladaptive. So this heightened stress, it's also why women are more likely to get long COVID compared to men. It's also why after puberty, we see that women have three times the rate of autoimmune disease as compared to men. and that. One, for each category of adversity, a woman faces growing up, her chance of developing an autoimmune disease in adulthood increases by 20%. Whereas for a man, it's 10%. That's estrogen right there. That's estrogen. So it's all a good thing. It's very protective, except when it's not. And when it's not, Then we see even more of this revving up of the stress threat response, even more of this stuck in this first half of the stress cycle. And that's where we start to have the higher rates of depression, anxiety, autoimmune disease in women and Alzheimer's. So it's fascinating. But if we don't know about it, we can't do anything about it. And we just never really
0: delved into studying it. Wow, it's it's again. It's, my brain is just going a thousand times. What about uh, PMS and estrogen, and is that is that, um, is that a stress response as well?
1: Um. So you know, um, the shifting amounts of estrogen in a woman's body. Are more the issue as I understand it than the level at in terms of so I don't want to um, I don't want to give anyone the impression that higher levels of hormones are bad Um, it's so I must say this in the book 8 million times we don't want to misuse this information oh wow women are more sensitive no this is None of this is true unless we have high levels of adversity. We don't see any of these changes happen in the developing female brain or body, Not a none of it, unless there is a history of stress and threat on that I'm not safe track, or if we see trauma and adversity come in. Without that, the female brain is actually super, super neuroplastic, very adaptive, very attuned to discerning whether threats are safe or not, and had to be, right? Because I keep saying across evolutionary time, you know, a long time ago, it was a female stress threat response that had to be spot on to continue to have babies, And to continue, well, men as well, right? We need both to have babies, to keep her babies safe and to continue this human race. It was the the female's job to protect her young, to suckle her young, to give birth to her young. So this, um, what I talk about in the next book is this spidey sense that women have. Uh, Leading uh, evolutionary biologists believe that this developed for good reason. And when we don't have adversity or we have normal adversity, right? Cause having zero adversity is also not good. We don't want kids to grow up in a bubble of, of, of never worrying about anybody but themselves. I mean, a little wobble is a very important thing for developing uh, synaptic connections in the brain that will help us to navigate bigger problems later in life. So it isn't that we want a lack of problems but we want a lack of children feeling they aren't safe with the adults and their environment, and when we take adversity out of the picture, the female brain is just boom, shockingly uh, powerful. In fact, um, a neuroscientist said to me, and "I'll prove it to you." Um, female neuroscientists, you know, we think that women developed our first tools. <sighs> so, so. That's the message here. It isn't a sensitivity, it isn't a PMS problem or any, not that you were implying it was. This is a problem of adversity in women's lives and women are you know, more likely to meet up with certain types of adversity, obviously sexual and physical abuse, um, more likely to suffer from sexism, obviously sexual assault. All you have to do is pick up the newspapers and or twitter for that matter and you just see you know five out of five headlines about bad things happening to people are men doing things to women and girls grow up in that environment so anyway that my publisher's probably going to be like you shouldn't talk this much about the next book so i'll stop
0: <laughs> <laughs> sorry about that i just uh I'm just fascinated with what's coming. Um, But just a couple of more things about ACEs and suicide. In your book, you write, um, only 1% of those with an ACE score of zero have ever attempted suicide. Almost one in in five individuals with an ACE score of four or more has tried to end his or her life. A person's with a score of four or more is typically 1,220% more likely to attempt suicide than someone with an ACE score of zero. Um, it's incredible. It's incredible what, what we're doing to our children that we don't even know have repercussions down the line. Um, and you also say um, individuals with an ACE score of one had suffered from clinical depression and the likelihood rises with each ACE score. Um, 30% of those with an ACE score of three and nearly 50% of those with an A score of four or more had suffered from chronic depression. So we got suicidal depression, which is a mental illness, which is an ACE. So the cycle continues.
1: That's right. And we have to think that um, an individual who grows up um, facing, um, you know, wanting to take their life or who you know, had developed depression, which is depression is so common and, and um, so often not treated as it should, you know, not treated because people feel such shame about it. And yet it's so common, you know, depression is so common in our society. Look at, look at our society. We're talking about nearly three quarters of people growing up with adversity. Only when we only count 10 types of diversity and we know there are 30 different types of diversity and we're growing up in a, in a, you know, this, time in which the world is burning and politics are raging and making less sense than ever. And we're in a pandemic and there's school shootings and, and drive-by shootings, you know, this is insane. And so our levels of um, stress are very high. And if you come into this stressful world and you have stress at home and you're also in our very stressful society in which we have very few social safety nets, right? Um, you know, America is terrible at social safety nets. Um, if you were in um, Denmark or Sweden, your kids would go to college for free and you would have help caring for your elderly relatives and you would have help uh, financially when you have a baby and uh, you would have uh, retirement. So so we just have no social safety nets here. And you combine that with the world raging and burning and people dying of COVID in an individual who grew up with a high ACE score, it's gonna seem like too much. Like why bother? It's gonna seem like too much. Our rates of depression right now are so high uh, because of the pandemic and and, and because of the adversity in our society and because of our inability to talk about the adversity in our society. It's gonna feel like too much. It's feeling like too much for for a lot of people. And yet I just want to say that when people come forward and they admit their depression and they admit their anxiety and they can link it to their story, their narrative of suffering from before they can remember, right? We can begin to see tremendous change happen.
0: And possibility and hope. Right. And
1: possibility and hope and imagine a realistic and positive future
0: together. And in your book, you have a, a whole chapter on resilience and actually two. Well, one is for parents, but can we talk about a little bit about what we can do individually yes. and as a society to help build resilience individually and for our society?
1: Yes. So, um, so I think that one of the things we see in individuals with high scores is a really huge difficulty in turning to the self with self-compassion. We talked about the default mode network. That's part of the reason why, but if nobody ever taught you, if nobody ever showed you, they cared for you, how are you going to feel that you should care for yourself? Um, And so one of the first things we wanna work on with individuals with a history of adversity before we can get to resiliency and flourishing is this idea of being able to view the self and one's own story without recrimination and self-hatred. And that individuals with higher ACE scores kind of find a blank inside when they ask themselves, well, you know, do I feel compassion for myself? Can I can I feel that I'm worthy? They just, you can see just a, what is that? And so that's the first barrier. And I know you and I talked before, one of the projects that I've had going on is a Narrative Writing to Heal program to help people tell their story um, with very skilled writing prompts. And tell their narrative in a way that connects these dots and brings in many different self compassionate um, exercises and techniques that are all science based along the way. So, in between the discovering and the knowing of the narrative, in come these moments to stop and begin to go in when the brain is open and plastic and do some moments of self-compassion and exercises that kind of trick the brain and get past resistance and go into that place within where we can begin to shift the narrative. So so this is the most important thing of all, because otherwise what we're doing is we're saying to people who've had a lot of adversity um, you know, a lot of people get caught up in, okay, they saw their doctor, their doctor is like, well, let's just get you a behavioral health specialist. And they're going to sit down and they're going to do some CBT with you and some meditation. And, you know, you're going to feel a lot better. And here's a medication. And I'm all for all those things. I think all that can be enormously helpful. Yay. But it's spaghetti on the wall. Just throw in spaghetti on the wall. If we haven't been able to help people take their gains, feel them with a sense of presence and gratitude for who they are and what they survived. Because the extraordinary thing is that individuals with high ACE scores are here. And I don't even like the word resiliency anymore, even though I know I put it in that book in my next two books, I don't talk about resiliency so much because I think it, We use resiliency to think of uh, a child who grew up with, um, you know, violence, poverty, chronic humiliation, physical and sexual abuse. We go, oh, you know, he has to be resilient. That kid was already resilient. He was already resilient. He would not be alive right this minute. You with your mom and dad. Me with my own story we're already resilient. And I don't really like anymore the idea of asking people to become resilient because they're already extraordinary just to be here. What I think we have to work on is helping individuals to open a space within in which they can, if not right now, at some point, envision the idea that they are worth the work on their own being might not come right away. And then we can begin to say, what's right for this individual? Is it talk therapy? Is it um, mindfulness-based stress reduction? Is it CBT, trauma-focused CBT? Is it neurofeedback? Is it uh, EMDR therapy? Is it journaling? Is it medication? In, and And I've never really seen anyone heal without that first step. And then by coming together with a series of things that resonate for them, you're going to have people who do not want to do CBT. It feels too prescriptive to them, it uh, may help you know, more than 60% of people or whatever, but it's just not going to be the right way into their soul, to their story, to their sense of being, to feeling safe, to feeling known. And in all these, we wanna make sure we have practitioners who are activating a felt sense of safety because we know that we see change happen in the brain much more quickly when it is happening in conjunction with a practitioner who can offer that sense of partnership, belonging, safety, and being seen, this is, you know, we are the medicine. As Christy Patel says, we are the medicine. So it's it's a journey. And I can tell you because I've interviewed thousands of individuals, those who have a story of adversity that is significant are the most extraordinary people I have ever met or will ever meet. They've met, an edge of their own suffering and they've had to work for their own self-compassion in a way that opens them up to a compassion for all things, all beings. Look at the work you're doing right now out of your own story. You're the perfect example. And that kind of beams out of them like this magic light and I think these are the individuals who will save the world.
0: Ah, oh, Donna, thank you so much for your time and for your wisdom. I, I'm so honored to have you here. It's been better than I imagined because you're so, um, you're so articulate and you're so kind. That's the thing about your work is, is it's bringing kindness through science so that we can really examine what we're doing And you're another one of the people that are changing the world.
1: Well, that means so much to me. And it really has meant a lot to me when you've shown me some of the videos of the work that you do and, and the impact that this very, really at its heart, very simple science can have when we break it down very simply and to just be here with you. And, and and to see the work that you're doing and the way that you bring this magic light into the darkest rooms of suffering. It's very moving and, and how you became this person to do this and get up in the morning and how the people you work with get up in the morning and, and wanna work on changing their, themselves and their stories this is the most beautiful thing that we have on the planet. I think it's why we're here. And to connect in that is is what it's all about. So thank you, thank you for having
0: me. Thank you, Donna. Thank you so much, Donna Jackson Nakazawa for your incredible wisdom and your um, insights and understanding of the brain and all the great work you've done, and for this incredible book, Childhood Disrupted and your other works. Um, If you enjoyed this podcast, please share, like, and subscribe, and please visit our website at compassionprisonproject.org. Go and watch this film, Step Inside the Circle, and please share it with your friends and family. Um, Thanks again for watching, and we'll see you next time.